Something to there. Maybe there's something we can learn about that, I don't know. <laughs> and incidentally, if we look at the map, we can see that all of the churches mentioned in Revelation are circled roughly around. There's Ephesus, and they're all in a circle around Ephesus. He did eventually get to Ephesus, um, but only after the Lord had him proclaimed the gospel in the cities of Macedonia, the first of which was Philippi, the second Thessalonica, then Berea, then Athens, and Corinth. So going back to those churches mentioned in Revelation, Paul never mentions visiting any of them, except their obvious centre at Ephesus, where he taught the word for about two years in the school of Tyrannus, a philosopher of the city of Ephesus, until, as he said, all of Asia had heard the word of God. And that would have included all these Revelation churches um, that heard the word of the Lord Jesus. So that's in Acts 19.10. Uh, there were believers in Ephesus before Paul visited them, but the only baptism they knew was the baptism of John. So if you turn to Acts chapter 19, reading from verse 1, Acts chapter 19, verse 1, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you not receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came to them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and didn't believe, but spoke evil of the way before, before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. As Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, saying that should be, they should believe upon him who would come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. And it was, of course, a baptism in anticipation of the kingdom. That was the subject of John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, of course, they were living among other, along with others who had believed the message of the gospel of the kingdom in anticipation of that kingdom that John and then Jesus himself had proclaimed. But now we're 25 years or so after John and the kingdom was no longer at hand after Israel as a nation had rejected the king of that kingdom. Their rejection as a nation finalised when they stoned Stephen to death. And it's interesting to note the threefold rejection of Israel. They rejected the father when he sent his prophets and then finally his son. They rejected the son when they crucified him. And they rejected the Holy Spirit when they dismissed first what Peter and the other apostles said to them in early Acts under the direction of the Holy Spirit and then finally culminating with the murder of Stephen 
who also spoke to them in the power of the Spirit. And so back to Ephesus. After hearing what Paul had to say about Jesus, when he explained the gospel that was given by the Lord to him after the death of Stephen, my gospel, as I referred to it in in Romans 2.16, as distinct from the gospel of the kingdom for Israel, long promised in the Old Testament and the four gospels, the gospel that the Messiah who they were waiting for had been crucified for the sins of the world and then raised from the dead. They, that is, the gospel, the disciples of John, believed him and were baptised again, only this time in the name of the Lord Jesus, as head of the church, as Paul no doubt explained to them, just as he did to the Galatian church on his first missionary journey, a change of dispensation, where there's now no difference as to the spiritual status of believers, whether they be Jew or Gentile, slave or free. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That was his message to the Galatians when he wrote to them after his first missionary journey, reminding them of what he taught them originally, Galatians 3.28. And obviously, from Paul's baptising these men, there's a distinction between the baptism of John and Christian baptism. As has been said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. It was to publicly prepare those who who believed that the one who was to follow on from John was indeed their long-promised Messiah, and to prepare them for entry into that kingdom. A baptism of repentance because, as we now know, it was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as Exodus 19.6 says. Also to identify them with both him and the kingdom in preparation for entry into it. That's always the purpose of baptism, isn't it? To identify the recipient with something. The baptism of believers in this age of grace, now that the kingdom for Israel has been postponed, is to identify believers publicly with the death, burial and resurrection of their saviour. That's why Paul baptised these 12 men and it's why we hold to adult baptism in this church. It's a picture too, isn't it, as rituals always are, of the true baptism that takes place when at the moment of faith the Holy Spirit baptises believers or identifies them with the body of Christ, the church in his death, burial and resurrection. As he said to the Ephesians later on in chapter 4, from verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It's interesting too that just as Jesus originally had 12 disciples, 11 11 of whom with the addition uh, to Matthias, or Matthias, I don't know how you pronounce that name, were baptised by the Spirit and began to speak in tongues on the day of Pentecost, after they'd witnessed him raised from the dead. It's interesting that there were also 12 men here in Ephesus who were baptised by Paul. I'm only going to say interesting because I don't know what it really means. And also that they then, having, been baptized, having believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, were baptised by Paul and received the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. The question has been asked, why didn't they receive the Holy Spirit until then? 
because as we know, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in all new believers at the point of faith in Christ as their risen saviour. And the answer seems to me to be fairly simple. They weren't in a position to have faith in Christ as their risen redeemer. This wasn't the age of instant communication like today, and they were hundreds of miles from Israel. All they knew was the promise of John that the Messiah was coming and the kingdom was at hand. They were still living in their own minds and until they heard what Paul had to say in anticipation of that kingdom promised to Israel. And this was confirmed as well in the preceding chapter where Apollos, an Alexandrian Jew, and a skillful orator probably also only knew the baptism of John. And Priscilla and Aquila had to take him to one side, if you remember, and explain to him the way of God more adequately. Brought him up to date with events since the day of John's baptism. Or since the days of John the Baptist. The answer to any question that we may have in the Bible, as Kevin pointed out a few weeks ago, can nearly always be found in the context of where and when it was written, and to whom, in the surrounding verses, and if not in the surrounding verses, in the surrounding chapters, then in the context of the Bible as a whole, and if not there, then in the context of the age that's being addressed. And we know too, Paul's early ministry was accompanied by miraculous events without which many of the Jews, who did believe, possibly never would have. Because after all, as we know, for them, that is the Jews, it was normal and accepted for a new revelation that was, that was from God to be accompanied by a sign. And as these men, speaking in other tongues or languages, that, other languages than what they knew, after being baptised by Paul, undoubtedly was, the purpose of tongues was always related to Israel, and it was always a warning to them from God himself of judgment, as first announced in Isaiah 28, verse 11. And in a related way, perhaps, to the judgment of God on, on Babel, two, thousands of years before, when he confused their languages into multiple tongues in the first place. But that might be for another day. Later on, once the church was established and the message accepted, the miracle ceased. And Paul couldn't even heal his dear friend Timothy of whatever it was that he later said to him, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. But going back to the Thessalonians before we digress any further, we explained last time that Paul had stayed with them for quite some time, possibly up to a year or two, because in his letter to them we see him refer to doctrines that really need some explanation, as though they are already familiar with them. The reason that Paul wrote the letter in the first place uh, was because he had a report from Timothy, whom he sent to Thessalonica to see how the young church was getting along. And from the content of the letter, we can deduce uh, that, that there were several reasons for Paul to write this letter to them. In the first three chapters of the letter, he's forced to defend his character as well as his apostleship. His genuineness and motives were being brought into doubt by his Jewish opponents. And not content to have got rid of Paul, they now started to attack and persecute the church that he'd left behind. No doubt accusing them too of being followers of this king, other than Caesar. And you can just see it, can't you? They were jealous of how many converts to Christianity Paul had won for the Lord, and so they cast doubt. Paul wasn't with them, after all, any anymore. And their faith wasn't genuine, might have gone the accusation. It's just a phase. They might have said, on the other hand, do you really want us to report you to the authorities as we did Paul? 
Where is this pool? If he was really concerned about you, why did he leave? He's insincere, isn't he? What you really need to do is come back to our old established way of relating to God. Our way. We've been worshipping God in in the way that he prescribed for the past 1,500 years or so. And you can just see it, can't you? It doesn't take much imagination, as has already been stated. And Paul really does have to win their trust back. Because how is anyone ever going to believe him or anything else that he says if they no longer trust him? Another problem is that the Thessalonians had, and these were genuine concerns, since Paul had been there, some of them had departed from this life. And some of those who remained had questions about how the departed would relate to the Lord's coming back again for his church. Would they take part in it? And if so, how? And that question leads to the unique aspect of this um, epistle or letter to the church, and that it's the only letter that the apostle It's only in this letter that the Apostle mentioned the Lord's return for his church in every chapter of the book. And without this book, we too would be a whole lot poorer in our knowledge of his return. So these new new believers in Thessalonica come under all sorts of pressure to test their faith. Paul's enemies were casting doubt on his sincerity. They were being persecuted by them and their questions about the Lord's return. And when Timothy brings this report back to Paul in Corinth, he sets about writing 1 Thessalonians. So in the first three chapters, Paul reminds them of experience that he had, experiences that he had with them about six months to a year earlier. He first of all vindicating his credibility, and then once he's done that, then in the next two chapters, four and five, he sets about addressing their theological concerns. There are other of Paul's letters where he has to vindicate himself before getting onto the subject of the letter. 2 Corinthians being an example that springs to mind. I remember starting to teach through that book when we were at Biddulph, and there were similar issues that Paul had to address before he could instruct them about anything. And when we see this pattern of bringing accusations against those who were leaders in the church, we might start to understand why Paul later on wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, where he said, do not entertain an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses. And this is just as important today, isn't it? Or even more so. Satan just loves to bring down Christian leaders, always has done. And he was doing it with Paul. And he's been doing it ever since. What is it that James says about the tongue? That it's like a forest fire, isn't it? And if rumours could spread like wildfire in Paul's day how much quicker today when we've all got that miniature keyboard in our pockets that connects us to everyone and so many potential keyboard warriors that can spread malicious rumours around the world in minutes if they have a mind to and we've all seen that now that doesn't mean that pastors and elders are above correction it just means that the proper process has to be gone through with two or three eyewitnesses when there's a potential problem. So in chapter 1, Paul deals with the genuineness of their conversion, which has been brought into doubt. In chapter 2, up to verse 16, he addresses the accusation that has brought his motives into doubt. Then up to chapter 3, verse 13, he addresses the accusation that he wasn't really concerned about the Thessalonians. Then moving on in the first eight chapters, 
verses of chapter 4, he deals with the issue of immorality in the church. And in the next three verses of chapter 4, he deals with the issue of laziness. In chapter 4, 13 to 5, 12, he deals with eschatology or prophecy. And he talks a little bit about ministry imbalances for the first three chapters, first three verses of chapter 5. And then from verse 16 to the end of the book, the topic is about our progressive sanctification, how we grow in the Lord, how we grow up in our faith to become more like our Saviour, how we grow up in faith, hope and love. Those three essentials of Christian growth, without which it's just bums on seats and we're just a social club without, without those three attributes, faith, hope and love. Thankfully, here in this church, there's a, there's a good me measure of all three among this congregation. And so by way of review of, of what we talked about last time, you'll probably see by now that for a short book, there's quite a bit to get through. So we'll make a start in verse 1. To the church of the Thessalon Th Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. After that introduction, there's probably any need, hardly any need to mention that he's writing to an established church, consisting, as already stated, of mainly Gentile believers who would turn from idols. And it's pretty much a standard greeting to any of the churches to which he writes, where the greeting comes in the name of the Father, the Son, and expressing grace and peace towards them. He's mentioned the other, he mentions the other member of the Godhead in verse 5. Verse 5 reads, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you. So how many gods do we worship? Can we have the next slide, please? That's right, one. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Next slide, please. I can flick it. So, it's just that he's always expressed himself in three separate and distinct personages. I know I say always because right back in Genesis 1, in the second verse, although we'll read from verse 1 if you turn there, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So from that reading, we see that God is a spirit. But skip down to verse 26, and we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Three times in one sentence, God refers to himself as a plurality of persons. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I don't believe it's an accident that there were three references to the plurality of God in this sentence, one for each member of the Godhead. Indeed, we believe that God made man with three components too, don't we? Body, soul and spirit. Thus a true reflection of the way that God, that man was originally made of God. 
And all through the Old Testament, there are references and events that we won't go into because otherwise we'd be here all night and probably offer tomorrow as well, that demonstrate that God, although one in essence, one in character, nevertheless is of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it took the church three centuries to come up with a form of words that sought to explain the Godhead, how the Father related to the Son and how they both related to the Holy Spirit. All three are God, co-equal and co-eternal forever. And yet there's a hierarchy within the Trinity as well, isn't there? The Father sent the Son. And when the Son returned to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in each believer. And I'm not going to even attempt to explain any more than that, partly because it's beyond my understanding. Some things we accept by faith. Except to say that Paul had obviously taught the Thessalonians about the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to some degree, as it refers all three to all three in this, these first five verses without any further explanation. Another word you'll notice in the introduction is that word grace. And we could go on talking for the rest of our time, couldn't we, about God's grace or unmerited favour towards us. How he gives and attributes to us all the merits of his son, our saviour. Not because of anything that we deserve, as Kevin's already said. Because we all know we don't. No matter how much human good we manage to do in this life, if we were to measure it up against the standard required to have any sort of relationship with God, both now and forever, we'd fall short. As Isaiah so eloquently, I can't say that word, eloquently put it in chapter 65 and verse 6, 64 and verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Whatever we do that we see as good, our righteous acts, if accomplished in our own energy rather than out of the grace of God in us, are often done for the wrong motive, aren't they, rather than from out of the pure motives that can come only from God. The man who gives to the church so that in his own mind he can get something in return. The woman who spends her day doing charitable deeds so that she can be seen by others. The one who parades his prayer and other aspects of his spiritual life so that all can see it. Just a few examples of which, even as believers, if done from any other motive than what God plants in our heart to do, are those filthy rags that Isaiah spoke about over two and a half thousand years ago. But God in his grace loves us, um, whom he created and sent his son to take our place, to bear our sins, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's his grace. That's his unmerited favour towards us. There was and is nothing we can do to help ourselves when it comes to a right relationship with God. Only a complete dependence upon him and his unfailing grace towards us. If there were, then Jesus need never have died there on the cross on our behalf. Think about that one for a moment. And when Paul mentions the word grace in his introduction, he knows he's already taught them what it means. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another word in that introduction, isn't there? Peace. Referring to the peace of God that passes all understanding. And there's an order there, isn't there? First grace and then peace. Without God's grace demonstrated towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Without that grace in the first place, we couldn't have peace. Without being reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ by his grace, where would our peace be? One thing's for sure, this world doesn't have it, does it? Need I mention Russia and, Re Russia and Ukraine, or Israel and the so-called Palestinians, or the battles that go on within our own government, or the crime that goes on around us and that affects us in one way or another every day? Or the enmity that is often endemic within our own families. Can't get much, much closer to home than that, can we? And yet here is Paul remi reminding this young Thessalonican church of the grace of God and the peace of God in his opening sentence to them. He's already taught them about both. The Greek word for peace here is Irene, from which we get the word Irene. Now, I might have asked William if... If he were here, if his, life, if his wife lives up to what a name means, but we won't do that. I'm sure that she often does. And it's the opposite of the word polemos, meaning war. Before we experienced God's grace, whether we knew it or not, we were at war with God. As Paul explained to the Ephesian church in chapter 2, starting at verse 14, For he himself is our peace. Hugh made uh, both one and, uh, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That passage is packed with explanation as to why we were at enmity with God and as believers are now at peace with him. All that the Lord did was to demonstrate the enmity, the separation. And then Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, as a man having lived an obedient life, totally at peace with his father himself, laid down that life there on the cross and then was raised from the dead, so that all who are in him, as Paul says, whether those who are near, his own countrymen, or those who were far off, Gentiles, through faith, all through their saviour, have peace with God. And if you've trusted Christ as your saviour this morning, then you have peace with God. That's the first step. That's your position in Christ. But then there's something entirely more, isn't there? It's one thing knowing you're at peace with God. It's quite another experiencing that peace, whatever situation you're in. And it's a natural extension of what we heard this morning. I told you to be complimenting what you said this morning. We can have a theological understanding of the peace of God, that's the position of all believers. 
But when the rubber meets the road in our day-to-day lives, do we experience that peace? If you want a description of what that peace looks like, that the Apostle Paul wished on the Thessalonian church, right here at the start of his letter, after hearing all these questions that they had for him from Timothy's report, in the midst of the persecution they were facing from their Jewish opponents, turn to Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. Mark chapter 4 verse 35. And Jesus is in a boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, an inland lake in northern Israel, about seven miles across. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to him, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him it's not only what peace looks like totally relaxed in the midst of the storm so much that he slept he knew beyond doubt that the father had plans for him and his disciples on the other side of this storm that's why he had peace and have you noticed once he calmed the storm they were more afraid of him than they were of the storm they feared exceedingly the text says who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey him. And of course it's likely that the Lord set up up this entire situation to demonstrate to them who he was. An extremely graphic picture for them that no matter what came their way, that that they could trust him to deliver them through it. The peace of God, as Paul says to the Philippians, that passes all understanding. That same peace that he also wanted for the Thessalonians in his opening greeting for them, and by extension to us. That no matter what the world threw at them, and Paul had first had an experience of that, the same Jesus who now dwells in each and every one who has trusted in him for their salvation, thus also giving them positional peace with God, they can now experience that peace in their hearts in the midst of everything if we continue to trust in him in the details of our lives, no matter what they are. And no matter what we're going through, whether it be opposition at work, whether it be health issues, relationship issues, or even as we anticipate that final hurdle in this life, departure from it, we can experience that peace of God that passes all understanding if we live in dependence upon him to deliver us through whatever trial we're in because he will deliver us through them, one way or the other. Perhaps not always in the way that we hope or wish for at the time, that isn't promised. But what is promised is our future hope. As Peter told his readers in 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, 
casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. And when we do that, we not only know we have peace with God, but we'll experience it too. In Philippians chapter 4, from verse 4, we read, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do we rejoice in the Lord always? Do we remain gentle or calm in the midst of suffering? Do we pray in every situation and with thanksgiving make our requests made known unto God? I know I fall short at times, more times than I'd like to. And even when we do, then God is often gracious. Now, you might be wondering why I've put this picture of a suitcase up on the screen. Carol knows why I've put it up. It's a pretty distinctive suitcase, isn't it? And like our other bright orange case, which we brought so that we'd easily see them when they came off the baggage belt at the airport, they be easy to spot. And for the last 10 years or so, we've been using these two cases, and we've never seen any others like them. So on our way back from Tenerife last week, when a case just like this one was the second one off the belt, after an all-night flight, that's mine, I grabbed it off the belt. Carol felt a bit uneasy about it, and for some reason, she wanted to check the key in the lock. This is our case, I said. Look at it. Sometimes, gentlemen, when, even when you're tired, as we all were, at that baggage belt, and probably especially when you're tired, you need to listen to your wife. Because that would have saved me a whole lot of running around Cheshire that day. But she didn't check the key, unusually for her, until we got home and she wanted something out of it before we went to bed. And then the key wouldn't fit. After about an hour in bed, I couldn't rest because, after all, this isn't our case. And ours just might still be at the airport. So I went off back to the airport with the only other case in my world that looked like this one. Hoping more than anything else that whoever had our case had been a bit more observant than at least I had. And this was the case with the most in it. The dirty washing was in the other case. All those things that you ladies just have to take on holiday with you. All your makeup, the entire contents of the medicine cupboard, <laughs> all of our old worn clothes, not to mention all the gifts that we bought in Tenerife, and much more, all in that case. Some things that could be replaced, and some that couldn't. Anything of value, at least as far as we knew, was in that case. Sadly, it wasn't to be. And I filled in the appropriate form back at the airport and tried to, re to be reassured by them. This happens all the time. Most people eventually get their cases back. I do remember praying about it. But was it before I got into bed or on the way to the airport or on the way back from the airport for the second time that day? I couldn't remember. On getting home the second time, at least I could sleep because my job was done. There was nothing else I could do. All we could both do was wait. 
So we got up around two in the afternoon and Carol was in the conservatory. While I'd been gone, she'd uploaded all our holiday photos onto Facebook, as you do. And she had this big beaming smile on her face. Because the lady who'd taken our case, having done what we should have done and gone to bed without even bothering with the cases, on getting up, uh, she was, she'd got up now, and her key didn't fit either. And come to think of it, as she later said to me, this case does have a lot of stickers on it. She paid a bit more attention to the label than we did and found Carol's name, an unusual name tab in it. It's usually hidden from view, as we later found out. In the middle of the label, so they take the label, fold the label round, it's in the middle, underneath the handle. And so, as some of us might do, she searched Facebook and not only found Carol, but saw all our holiday photos. But then there was something else that she noticed. You see, the Lord who is sovereign and outside of time, as we see it, knew all this was going to happen. That same Lord who gives us his peace that passes all understanding when we remember to trust in him. And sometimes when we don't, because he loves us. He overruled the events of that day. Because the previous evening, before we ever knew there was going to be a problem, when we'd already checked our suitcases in at the airport, had gone through security and were waiting for our planes to be ready. Most of, all, most of us have been there, haven't we? Carol went to the ladies' room. I'm walking alongside her and having a conversation with her on the way there and on the way back was this lady. The lady who now had our case. And when she saw Carol again on Facebook the next afternoon, she recognised her from yesterday at the airport and sent a message. Remember me? I think I might have your case. Carol said it was an answer to, to her prayer as I got into the car for the third time that day, only this time to drive to Chester. And she was right. So a special thank you to, Ch to Tracy from Chester. And an even bigger thank you to God who overruled the events of that day, despite all of our failings. He's a God who we can trust, even in the little things of life, as the temporary loss of this case was. As well as the big things, and we all remember how the Lord intervened in William's life a few years ago now, don't we? In answer to much prayer from people in this church and beyond. Doesn't a loving father take care of his children? In our case that day, the, the Lord was gracious. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that the Lord always does the same thing because he doesn't. Sometimes we take those losses and still lean upon him. Or we should. Because when we do, when we realise that the Lord has a purpose for our lives as believers, and as long as whatever it is that he's allowed us to go through, then when the dust settles and we're still here, then we know that God still has a purpose for our lives just as those disciples of Jesus should have done on that boat with him out in that storm on the Sea of Galilee. Because when he doesn't, when he no longer has anything useful for us to do for us here on this earth in his service, then he'll take us home to be with him. As the apostle said to whom these things were revealed, for me to live and to die is gain. And when we understand the significance of that in our lives, 
and when we live in it in our day-to-day lives, then we have God's promise that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now you may know someone, even today, who is in a difficult situation. They may even be in a war zone of which there are a few going on right now, not least of all Israel. And the direct application of these events is, is as long as the Lord has a purpose in the lives of these early Thessalonian believers, or for your friend's life, or yours for that matter, then he'll protect them, or even you if he has plans for you in this life. And they are just as safe with bullets and missiles flying around them, or even if a terrorist is knocking on your door, as we saw in the news this week, as you are sitting on that seat. How do we know that? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And then if he doesn't, then as Paul said, to die is gain. Do you know that the Lord rejoices in the death of his loved ones, according to Psalm 116, 15? And he rejoices too when people understand this principle and serve him in their lives day by day. There may be someone here this afternoon or listening online who doesn't even have that positional peace with God, where your sins are forgiven and you are part of the family of God through faith in Jesus our Saviour. Will you trust in the one who died on the cross to take away the penalty of your sin, who was then raised again from the dead and was seen after his resurrection by all the disciples as well as at least 500 others on one occasion? The one who turned around even Saul of Tarsus, stopped him in his tracks as he went about persecuting those who forever after that event he then joined and encouraged with what the Lord had revealed to him. Will you trust in Jesus our Saviour to make you right with God and give you his peace so that you too can experience eternally both now and forever the peace of God that passes all understanding. We pray that that will be the case for someone listening here this afternoon. Amen.